while we move from our worship of our Lord through song to now worship through his word. Join me in John chapter 13 for this morning, John chapter 13. And we are picking up where we left off last week on that fateful Thursday evening and the event that takes place just hours before Jesus is going to hang upon his cross. We're picking up the story in verse 18, 18 through 30, where Jesus speaks his final words to Judas. He uncovers Judas's treacherous plans and then dismisses Judas from the upper room to carry out the evil that has filled his heart. In verse 18, you remember from last week, there's a transition, a contrast that takes place. The story now turns from love to hate, from the love that Jesus has just shown his apostles in verses 1 through 17, a a humble love, a sacrificing love shown in washing their feet, an act that depicts his coming death and resurrection. We move from that love of Christ to now the hate one of his apostles has for Christ, the hatred of hypocrisy, the hatred of deception and betrayal. Never has there been a man so close to Jesus and yet so far away from the gospel. Judas is one who called Jesus Lord for three years He's one who heard Jesus' teaching and saw his perfection. In fact, Judas even preached the gospel. He was sent out with the other apostles. He performed miracles in Jesus' name. But in the end, we see that he's lost forever. He's cast out of Jesus' presence. He will be sentenced to eternal hell. Judas is the epitome of sin He is more evil than the Sanhedrin who will condemn Jesus to death. He is more evil than Pilate who will sentence Jesus to the cross. He is more evil than the Roman guards who who will scourge Jesus' back, strip him naked, gamble for his clothes, nail him to a beam. Why? Because Judas was a traitor, a hypocrite, the son of perdition who sold the son of God for a price. Look back to verse two. Notice Judas will open himself up to Satan's plans. Verse two, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Judas tempting, or Satan tempting Judas. Judas opens himself up to Satan to such a degree, drop down to verse 27, Satan will actually enter into him carry out the most monstrous sin ever to be committed, betraying Jesus with a kiss. And so it's no wonder verse 30 ends, the summary of verses 18 through 30. Verse 30 ends with this phrase, and it was dark. The shadows of sin have been cast over the light of God. So the way we're unpacking the passage is by looking at the most despicable act of evil here. 
and then drawing out some certain and general principles of sin that have been true ever since the fall of man. Principles we must be aware of as sin permeates our worlds, as sin surrounds us, as we're tempted, and yet we seek to live a life of holiness and repentance. We're seeking a life that says no to sin, yes to righteousness. And in particular, there are nine principles about sin that we see here. Sin principles as Judas turns on Jesus. Now, we saw the first four last week. Remember, principle number one. Principle number one, sin will always promise what it cannot deliver. Judas' case in point. Judas caves into the lust for wealth, money, He believes the deceitfulness of wealth. But Judas didn't experience the fulfillment that sin promised. And you see that contrast. Look at verse 17, the contrast. The promise that Jesus gives the faithful 11, if you know these things, my words, my command to love one another, if you know these things and you do them, you are blessed. Now the contrast In verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. Judas will not experience blessing on this night. He'll experience the agony of guilt, not the joy of glory. He'll feel the weight of shame, not the promise of blessing. He'll be enticed by his own lusts. And his sin will end in his own death. Sin will always promise what it cannot deliver. Moves into verse 18, principle number two, sin is used by God always for his glory and our good. Sin is used by God's sovereignty here, always for his glory and our good. Jesus explains that he chose Judas to be his disciple for a specific purpose. What is it? To fulfill the sovereign plan of God. Verse 18, that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus chose Judas knowing full well that Judas would betray him. In fact, Jesus chose Judas because of his hypocrisy, because of his betrayal. You have here redemption coming through sin. Our good coming through treachery. God's glory ultimately being put on display because of betrayal. It's principle number two. Number three here, verse 19. Principle number three, the existence of sin should strengthen our faith, not weaken it. So key for us today, sin surrounds us. The existence of sin should strengthen our faith, not weaken it. Verse 19, Jesus says, I am telling you before it, before the evil happens, before my betrayal, I'm telling you before it comes to pass. Why? Here's why. So that when it does occur, you may believe, so that you will be strengthened, belief, grow in your belief. Grow in your faith, believe that I am, so that your commitment to me will deepen. 
and strengthen. Not only does Jesus know the sin Judas will commit here, but by extension, Jesus, God, knows every sin that will be, will be committed in this world. Jesus is not fooled here in chapter 13. He's not fooled any day sin happens. He knows the end from the beginning. He actually declares the end from the beginning. And all of that is proof that he is the I am God incarnate, Yahweh in human flesh. It's a faith strengthening reminder that no sin takes place out of God's design, God's design. And when sin is indeed allowed to happen by God, it goes back to the previous principle. It will somehow and in some way always bring good to God's people and glory to God's name. Leads then into verse 20 in principle number four. Principle number four, sin can only be remedied by the gospel of Jesus. Sin can only be remedied by the gospel of Jesus. This is why Jesus offers his apostles one of those truly, truly statements. Verse 20, Jesus predicts Judas's evil and then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, the faithful 11, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, again, speaking of the apostles who will soon be sent out by God, by extension, us too, who are ambassadors of Christ, the promise I'm giving you in the midst of a dark sin that will be committed, a dark world, he receives whomever I send, receives me, receives salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life. And he receives me, receives him who sent me reconciliation with the Father, the one who sent Christ. Again, a great reminder for us, sin, yes, permeates the world. But within that darkness, we must shine the light of Christ's gospel. That's our calling. Why? Because sin can only be remedied by the gospel of Jesus. So that's where we ended last week, let's pick it up, principle number five here, as sin spirals even further. Principle number five, sin should cause our hearts to tremble. Sin should cause our hearts to tremble. The truth of the matter is this, sin does not trouble us like it should, right? We coddle sin, don't we? We justify it in our own lives. We lessen its seriousness. But notice verse 21, how different it was with Jesus. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, announcing Judas's betrayal, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled. It's a strong word, terrasso. He became stirred up. He's agitated right now. You could translate it as convulsing. Again, strong word. It refers to extreme anguish. It refers to trauma, severe and spiritual turmoil. Jesus is shocked right now, perplexed. 
Notice he's troubled in spirit, emotional distress within his heart, spiritual anguish within his soul. Don't lessen the weight of this word. Severe turmoil now fills him. This is not the first time we've seen Jesus respond in this way. Look back to chapter 11, verse 33. Chapter 11, Jesus standing before Lazarus' grave. We are told Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, same word. When we looked at that passage, we asked the question, why was Jesus so shocked at Lazarus' death, Lazarus' grave? Why was he so shocked? Was it because a friend died? No. In fact, Jesus let him die four days earlier. Was it because Mary and Martha were sad? No. Jesus would soon give them their brother back. Then what was it? What is shocking Jesus there? It wasn't Lazarus' death that shocked Jesus. No, what shocked Jesus was Lazarus' coming resurrection. Because Jesus knew if he was going to call Lazarus out of the grave, then Jesus had to go into the grave. That's what's shocking him. If Lazarus is going to conquer death, then Jesus needs to pay the wages of death, the wages of sin. Jesus is shocked in chapter 11 because of his coming cross and what that means. Look at chapter 12, verse 27 again, same response from Jesus. My soul, now my soul has become Troubled, same word, terrasso. Why the trouble here? Why the anguish here? Again, because Jesus knows that his hour of death, his time of sacrifice has now come. That's why he says in the middle of verse 27, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, the hour of my cross, the hour of God's judgment falling upon him, save me? No. Jesus says, no. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus was troubled because he knew that his father's wrath would be poured out upon him very, very soon. He's agitated in spirit because he knew Isaiah 53, 10, what must happen to him. He must be crushed by his father. And the word crushed there, it's a word similar to dust. He must be pulverized into dust by his father, putting him to grief. So troubles of soul, why? Because sin would soon be laid upon his head. It's chapter 11, chapter 12, now again in chapter 13. Verse 21, Jesus is again troubled, agitated, convulsing, in turmoil in his spirit, not because a friend is going to betray him. Jesus knows Judas was never his friend. 
And not because Jesus is surprised all of a sudden that someone is going to turn on him. He knew that from the beginning. And it's not because Satan is about to enter into this room. Now, Jesus' agony goes far beyond all of those options. Jesus is troubled in spirit here because he knows divine judgment for our sin. Divine judgment for our sin is now closer than ever before. John 11, the cross was weeks away. John 12, it was days away. John 13, it's now only hours away. And Jesus knows once he dismisses Judas from this room, when Psalm 41, 9, that prophecy that he mentions in verse 18, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Once that prophecy is fulfilled, once Judas is dismissed, the dominoes to his death will begin to fall rapidly. And he will soon be made sin for us. That's why he's troubled. One commentator wrote, Jesus had long foreseen his coming death, but now that the shadow of the actual cross fell upon him, he felt the shuddering horror of the terrible ordeal. Another commentator put it this way, he was beginning the final descent into the anguish of the cross. Every step towards its paradoxical heights and depths increased the burden of pain that was being laid upon him. The inner turmoil Jesus is feeling here is not any sign of weakness. It's a mark of his strength, a mark of his majestic holiness. He trembles because he hates Sin. It repulses him. And it's not sin that he's going to commit, it's sin that's going to be credited to his account. Sin that he is about to be pulverized for. This is his holiness. In his holiness, he hates sin, but in his love for the Father, his love for us, he submits to the path that leads to that cross. And thus we must ask the question then, why does sin not cause our hearts to tremble? Why are we not repulsed by our sin? Why do we coddle it? Why do we justify it away? This is our savior. This is what Christ-likeness looks like a hatred for sin. The prayer is that we would become more like Christ when it comes to our sin. So often the knee jerk is to take a stand against sin, right? But the sin in others, maybe the sin in the world, but what about taking a sin against, uh, taking a stand against our sin, personal sin? choosing to walk in obedience, to walk in repentance. Again, the prayer is that sin would agitate us on the inside. 
that we would be convicted unto repentance. Sin should cause our hearts to tremble. Connect Jesus' response back to verse one. Again, verse one is always a driving theme throughout the next few chapters. Jesus loved his own till the end. Again, this trembling is an act of love. He chooses to take upon himself the very thing, sin, the very thing that caused him so much turmoil and pain and agony, and he did it for us. He loved us to the max, to the full. Again, we can ask application questions. If this is true of Jesus, why would we ever choose to do something that caused our Savior to tremble? Why would we do that? Why would we ever do something for which our Savior experienced the pain of divine punishment? Principle number five, sin should cause our hearts to tremble. There's a sixth principle here. Principle number six, it's a warning. Sin can be hidden, but only for a time. Sin can be hidden, that is true, but only for a time. Finish verse 21. The trembling in soul, he testified. He's disturbed, but still committed to the cross. He testifies, he knocks over that first domino of fulfilled prophecy and he says, truly, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Those are shocking words for these men to hear. Which is why verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. This is beyond their wildest imagination that one of the men in this room would betray Jesus? Never, never. Notice that phrase, at a loss. This shows just how well Judas had hid his motives, his disappointments, his plans, his evil. How he hid it from the others. How well he had covered his own tracks. I think what's even more amazing, though, here is that even though Jesus has just exposed Judas's sin, Judas still thinks he can keep his treachery hidden. A friend of mine, he coined a phrase, he wants to write a book. And here's the title of the book Sin Makes You Stupid. That will sell, right? I should write it before he does. (laughs) Judas thinks he can keep his treachery hidden from Christ. It's the foolishness of sin. This is the pride of his heart. You You think you can keep your sin hidden from God who created you? Verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another. This includes Judas, He's continuing to play the part. Mark adds, they began to be grieved. So here, nothing is more painful that could have been said for the faithful 11. 
betraying. Jesus was betraying the Old Testament messianic prophecies. Betraying the covenants, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant. Betraying the Messiah King, betraying God. And, and so they said, this is in Mark, they said to him one by one, again, including Judas, one by one, surely not I. Matthew makes it very specific. Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. He's not going to blow his cover now. This is hypocritical brashness. Judas knows he's fooled the other 11. He's fooled them every day for the last three years, and now he thinks he can fool Jesus one last time. He thinks he can maybe talk his way out of this. Perhaps fool the one who is peering into his soul. One commentator described the scene this way. Evidently, the heart of Judas was hardened to such an extent that no blush on his cheek, no paleness of face, not a single change of feature was noticeable to the 11. As they looked into the face of Judas, they saw him calm and undisturbed. It's an amazing contrast. Again, verse 21, Jesus is troubled because of sin that will be credited to him. And Judas is calm, knowing he will commit sin. Now, at this point, you know what's going on in Peter's mind, right? He wants to know the identity of the traitor, right? Why? Because he wants to stop the traitor. Stop him. If Peter had no qualms about trying to kill an armed guard in the garden, what do you think he's going to do with an unarmed hypocrite in this room? So verse 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom, literally at his side, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This is now John, the gospel writer. This is how the table would have been set, arranged for the Passover. Mats would have been placed in a U shape around a low table. Normally they would sit for a meal, but not on a festival, not on Passover. They would lay down, head toward the table, feet extended away. They'd lean on their left elbow. They'd use their right hand to eat. It was symbolic, symbolic of the freedom they had to eat this meal in contrast to the hectic nature of the first Passover. So you have John now reclining right next to Jesus, right next to him. Jesus would have been in the middle of this table, one on his right, one on his left, places of honor, Verse 24, Peter gestured. The word means nodded. Just looks at John and he nods. Unspoken signal here. John knows what Peter is thinking. Peter gestured to him, to John, and said to him, 
maybe whispered, but probably just John knowing what Peter means by the nod. Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. Find out, John, let us know. Verse 25, John leans back on the Lord's bosom. He gets close to Jesus so only Jesus can hear. And he says to him, Lord, who is it? Who is it? They don't know. They've been duped. I would venture to say, never has there been a person more adept at hiding sin than Judas. He's the perfect actor. He's the flawless hypocrite. Not even Peter, the leader of this chosen band, or John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, they had no idea what Judas was intending. Even after Jesus predicted the traitor, Judas is the wolf in sheep's clothing, plodding, circling, readying himself to kill the shepherd. It's back in John chapter 10. The good shepherd, the wolf comes and kills him. It is true. It is true. Sin can be hidden. You can fool fool those closest to you. You can fool those in your family. You can put on a show. You can play the part. But be warned. It can only be hidden for a time because of principle number seven. Be sure your sin will find you out. It's Numbers 32. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's a promise. Notice what happens in verse 26. What Judas could hide from man, he could not hide from Christ. Jesus answered John's question. That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Jesus' answer. I'll identify him. I know him. What follows is an amazing few moments in redemptive history. John the Apostle is on one side of Jesus. And Judas, amazingly, place of honor, Judas is on the other side. Which means that Judas heard John's question, who's the betrayer? And it means he also heard Jesus' answer. It's the one I give the bread to. Again, this is sovereignty, the sovereignty of Christ in this moment, sovereignty over all sin and evil. Jesus decided where Judas would sit close to him. Why? So that he could reveal Judas's treachery without the other apostles knowing. If they know, they will try to stop Judas. Now, we don't know why the other apostles didn't hear Jesus's words to John. Maybe they were whispered. Maybe it's because the other apostles are still asking, is it I, is it I, who is it, is it you? Who who is this? There's confusion here, there's shock in the room. 
Whatever the reason, Jesus, true to his word, verse 26, dipped the morsel. It's a piece of flat-baked, unleavened bread. It would have been bitter herbs placed on it. It's dipped into a bowl of puree. It's dates, raisins, wine. He dips it in, and verse 26, he took and he gave it to Judas. Two notes here. First, this is not abnormal to do during the Passover. In fact, this was something that was expected to take place early on in this meal. It's a sign of honor, it's a sign of care, it's a mark of courtesy. Again, all by design, Jesus is making sure that he doesn't tip his hand to who the traitor is for the other apostles. No one knows the significance of what Jesus has just done here. But a second note, John records what happens with two present tense verbs. Two present tense verbs. Took and gave. It's a past action, happened in the past, but it's recorded with present tense verbs, meaning that John wants us to see Jesus do this. This is a movie now. Okay, picture this as if it's happening right now in this moment as we're reading this text. See Jesus dip the bread. See him hand it to his betrayer. See his love for us. His love for us shown by him setting in motion the events that will lead to his cross. He loved us to the end. He knocks over that first domino. This is a living picture of John 2. Jesus does not need anyone to testify concerning man. Why? Because he himself knows what is in man. He sees our hearts. It's a living picture of verse 11, 13, 11. Notice, he knew the one who was betraying him. He couldn't be fooled. It's a living picture of Hebrews 4. There is no creature hidden from his sight. Let's understand who we are. Let's be humbled by this. In pride, we think we can be hidden from God. There is no creature hidden from his sight. Even the greatest of all hypocrites. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Be warned. Despite the ability you might think you have, and despite the cleverness you think you have, your deception, your duplicity, the way you think you can always keep your sin hidden from those around you, those closest to you, there is always one. There is always one to whom your sin is open and laid bare. You cannot fool your savior. You cannot fool your creator. 
leads into principle number eight. Another warning, another warning. So severe here. Principle number eight, hard-hearted sin may progress to a point of no return. Hard-hearted sin may progress to a point of no return. To a point when there is no more hope for repentance. No more time for confession. No more day of salvation. It's what happened to Judas in verse 27. After the morsel, Judas takes the bread from Jesus. He deliberately shuts his dark heart to the light of Christ. He sears his own conscience. And in so doing, he fulfills the Psalm 41 prophecy, again quoted in verse 18. He takes the bread, he raises his heel against Jesus. And then we read this phrase, Satan then entered into him. That word entered into, it's used throughout the synoptic gospels for demon possession. It's more severe here. It's not a demon entering into Judas. It's the Lord of the demons entering into Judas. Look at the flow, verse two. The devil putting into the heart of Judas, Satan tempting Judas to betray Jesus. To now verse 27, Judas becomes a vessel for Satan. He's absorbed into the darkness of evil. He becomes one of only two people throughout the scriptures, one of only two people possessed by the devil. The other is the Antichrist who's coming. And no longer will Judas now act on his own. From here on out, he becomes like the snake in the garden. He only carries out the plans of Satan himself. I can't emphasize the severity of unrepentant sin more than this. Two warnings, one to the believer and one to the unbeliever. Start with the unbeliever. What's the warning here? Let's speak to the religious unbeliever, the Judas, the one who's heard the gospel, the one who may even be able to explain the gospel, yet the one who refuses to turn from his sin in repentance, refuses to come to Christ in saving faith. The warning is this, do not presume upon the Lord. Do not presume upon the Lord because there may come one day when your heart will be seared for the final time. And the Lord will turn you over to the sin within your heart. How many Judases have filled gospel preaching churches throughout the years? If you don't think a Judas can be in, in this church, it was a Judas in the company of Jesus. How many Judases? How many professing Christians have dressed the part, have been so close to the gospel and yet so far away from salvation? 
If that is you, be warned. Hard-hearted sin may progress to the point of no return. There's also a warning for the believer here. The believer, I'll quote J.C. Ryle. Trifling with the first thoughts of sin, making light of evil ideas when first offered to our hearts, all this may seem a small matter to many. It is precisely at this point that the road to ruin often begins. Let us watch jealously over our hearts and beware of giving way to the beginnings of sin. Let us take heed that we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. He is still going to and fro in the earth seeking whom he may devour. Strong as he is, he has no power to do us harm. If we cry to the stronger one in heaven and use the means which he has appointed, it is a standing principle of Christianity and will ever be found true. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist at the moment temptation comes. Even that beginning step. Well, there's a final principle. You move from a few warnings to now a promise of hope. Here's principle number nine. Sin will not be victorious in the end. Praise the Lord, right? Sin will not be victorious in the end. On the surface, it seems like sin is having its way in this moment. And it may look like sin is having its way in our world. But the hope for the believer is this. Not only does our sovereign God control all evil, but our Savior has defeated all evil. Verse 27. Therefore, now that Satan has indwelled Judas, Jesus says to him, to Judas, yes, but also to Satan, what you do, do quickly. You can mark that phrase, what you do, do quickly. Amazing. Jesus commands Satan here. Now the disciples have no idea, no idea why Jesus has just told Judas to leave the dinner. They're still in the dark. Verse 28. No one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. And no one suspects Judas's treachery. Verse 29. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that's the reason he betrays Jesus, the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for the feast. Not the feast of Passover, but the feast of unleavened bread. It would be celebrated later that night. Others, though, thought Judas was leaving, verse 29, to give something to the poor. That was common on this evening, Passover evening. The poor would gather at the, the temple gates and people would go and give alms to the poor. The point, though, is the disciples missed the meaning of Jesus' words. Well, what are, what is the meaning of Jesus' words? The meaning is this. It's simple, yet it's profound. Judas, Satan, don't wait any longer 
The time for darkness to reign has come. And I need you to go quickly and report to the Sanhedrin where I will be later this night. Jesus always went to Gethsemane at night to pray. That's how Judas knows he's going to be there. And you need to do this quickly. The Roman guards need to be gathered. There needs to be time to gather them. The Sanhedrin needs time to call their midnight trial. It's a command that Judas and Satan obeys in verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Luke 22, the power of darkness will now have its way with Jesus from here on out. Here's what I want you to notice. At this point, Satan makes the biggest gamble of his life, if I can put it that way. Because up to this point, Satan has always tried to keep Jesus from what? Keep him from the cross. He tried to kill Jesus early on through Herod. He tried to kill Jesus when tempting him in the wilderness. Throw yourself down from the temple peak. Or remember Peter. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Peter says, Jesus, you don't know what you're doing. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me who? Get behind me, Satan. Don't keep me from the cross. So up to this point, Satan has always tried to keep Jesus from the cross. Why? Because Satan knows the messianic prophecies. He knows the suffering servant must be pierced through for our transgressions. Isaiah 53. He knows Psalm 22. He knows Zechariah 12. The Savior is the pierced God. So Satan knows if Jesus successfully dies on the cross, it means his demise. Here's the problem, though. Satan has been unable to keep Jesus from the cross. Jesus keeps walking towards the cross. Satan has been powerless to stop it. So at verse 30, Satan makes his gamble. He will enter Judas. He will secure Christ's cross. And in the process, he will try to make the cross as painful as it can be for Jesus. He's gonna throw everything at Christ. He will bring every evil force against Jesus on this night. He will torment him in every possible way. All with the hope that it will be too much for Jesus and he will finally cave to that last temptation when he is told, come down from the cross and then we'll believe you. It's the last temptation. Use the cross, make it as severe as possible so that he will not fulfill the cross. It's the gamble that Satan makes here in verse 30 the hopes that Jesus will not be able to endure him. But we know how the story ends, don't we? Satan's gamble fails. Sin is defeated. And Christ becomes victorious. Christ, 
not sin, not Satan, but Jesus is the victor in this world. And all who are Christ, all who learn from these principles, all who seek a life of holiness based upon Jesus' cross, who love righteousness and hate sin, who rest on Jesus alone for their salvation, reconciliation, forgiveness, all who are Christ will share in the spoils of his victory. Let's make this a Christmas sermon. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, he will secure victory for his people from their sins. And with that, as verse 31 opens, the upper room has now been cleansed of Judas's treachery. Judas is now gone. And for the next five chapters, Jesus will teach his apostles like never before, preparing them for his coming departure. Father, we praise you that you, you use sin for our good and your glory. Father, we praise you that we have a victorious Savior. Our Savior is the coming King. Our Savior is the one who has ascended to your right hand, who will come back and every knee will indeed bow before him. Let that change the way we live now, that we would shine the light of his gospel in the shadows of sin. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.